your decision-making skills, everything, it benefits drastically by making this step into the float plane world. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Flying BC Podcast. I hope everyone had a great summer of flying adventures. I hadn't intended on taking a hiatus from the podcast, but between a busy work season, working on my commercial rating, and generally just enjoying summer, it took a back seat. But thank you to everyone who sent in some great feedback and encouragement over the past few months. I'm digging in for another season of shows, and we're kicking off with a good one. As always, follow along on Instagram, at Flying British Columbia, and email me at podcast at flyingbc.com. This discussion with Peter Grimm of Van City Seaplanes has been in the can for a while, and on revisiting it this week, I realized what a gem I had been sitting on. Peter started Van City when he was in his mid-twenties, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. We talk about that journey a bit, and then dive into what makes a good floatplane pilot. He explains some of the differences between lake flying versus saltwater operations, how to get the experience and training you need, and why the Beaver is still the workhorse of choice on the coast. From his hangar office at Pitt Meadows Airport, here, is Peter Grimm. All right, so Peter, welcome to Flying BC. Um, first off, I always ask people kind of their journey into aviation, things like that. I've I've known of you. I've never actually met you, um, but I know people who've flown with you. Uh, Kyle's been flying with you a bunch this past year, and. He says you have lots of great stories, and I know I know of you a little bit, so I, I wanted to get you on the show. So, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into aviation? And sure, absolutely. Um, you did taxi by my hangar. What was it yesterday or the day before? I uh, saw you go by, and <laughs> I was waving at the door, but you didn't see me. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Next time, I keep meaning to stop in. That's okay. Um, so. Uh, how did I get into aviation? What's my story in aviation? Um, I guess it um, sort of cycles back to uh, a good friend of mine who is, uh, is still a good, really, really good friend of mine um, who got me interested in aviation. Um, when I completed high school, I had very little uh, aspirations as far as uh, a direct path that I wanted to go in life. I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't, unfortunately, one of the kids that stared at the sky and dreamed of uh, being part of aviation in the sky and everything that's, you know, associated. So, um, I discovered aviation basically just outside of high school. Um, I was attending uh, UBC, first year U university outside of high school, and um, after an exam that I was sure that I bombed, turns out I didn't, but um, at the time it looked like I was not doing it so well. Um, I got a phone call and said, what are you doing today? What do you want to, do you want to come for a ride? And so I said, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to blow off everything that I'm supposed to be doing and I'm going to go and jump in a plane with you. Sure. Sounds good. So I met my buddy down at, um, Boundary Bay and he had been flying with Montair. And so we hopped in a 172 and uh, went for a little flight around town. We basically just did the typical sort of city tour. We left Boundary Bay, uh, came up along the coastline of uh, basically over top of the runways at uh, the overhead transit there at YVR, which you can't do anymore. Uh, <laughs> and uh, went out towards House Sound and circled around the city and just sort of made our way back to Boundary Bay. It was a fairly short flight inside of an hour. And um, I had no idea what was going on. Um, there was a lot of things on the dash that I had no idea how they worked. Um, but I'll tell you, the feeling in the seat of my pants was so good that I had to know more. And I had to... <laughs> 
do something about it. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, I guess there was the spark and that was the initial, um, I guess the, the fan flight, the, the thing that kind of got me hooked. So that, that was, that was how it started for me. Um, from there, it quickly transitioned into, um, shifting gears with respect to my, um, my schooling and I decided to, um, apply to attend coastal Pacific aviation in Abbotsford as well as university of Fraser Valley. And, uh, so that's when I started gearing up to head out there, uh, to do the college program there. And, um, I guess the rest is sort of history from there, but that's, that's how it sort of all started. So what was your first flying job after that, after, after getting a commercial rating and things like that? Well, my, uh, my first job in the industry, um, was working as a dock, um, uh, aircraft handler down at uh, West coast air in Vancouver. And so I spent some time, um, after making my way through the college program, trying to pay for it. So, uh, all the way through school and, and such, I had always been working in the car industry and, uh, it was a, a hobby and a passion of mine. And, uh, that translated into, um, uh, some after, uh, school work as well and summer work where I was selling cars and working in the car industry. And, and I did quite well with that. So, um, that sort of fueled me and, and, um, made things work fairly well, uh, making my way, uh, into, a not a flying job, but there, the flying jobs when I finished school were basically non-existent. Um, many of my friends were spending years on the ramp, uh, in uh, remote locations all across the country. Uh, some of them got fed up with that and some of them went the military route. Some of them left aviation outright. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was certainly not a, a good time in the aviation industry. Um, as many could attest that the industry has some ups and downs, uh, at that particular time, it was post 9-11, and it was certainly a down. And um, I don't know how to describe it, but um, the the jobs were few and far between. So uh, I took a ramp position uh, working with float planes. Um, I've always been interested in float planes. I've always spent time on the water as a younger guy. And um, I guess that's sort of how things went for me. A lot of pilots spend their careers working for other people. Um, but I'm interested in why and how you ended up in the entrepreneurial side of things. Um, right. When did you start Van City Seaplanes? So I started Van City Seaplanes in about 2009. Uh, that's when we got going. And... Um, I always had a desire to start my own company, uh, or be involved in running a, an airline. Um, since I started my career in aviation or, or my career path in aviation, I, I did a business degree in, uh, in my college years as well. Like I, I had a focus of, of business and economics and whatnot um, through UFV. And I was very interested in the business side of, uh, aviation as well as, uh, the flying side. So it was, uh, it was certainly an interest. I didn't think at the time that I would have the opportunity or that I would be so young jumping into the market as, um, as an owner of an airline. Um, I guess just the opportunity and the stars aligned at the right time. I was, I was 25 when I started my airline and that was, um, that was a big leap. Yeah, I bet that's, uh, 2009. So that wouldn't be too many years after you got your 
commercial license and was working on the dock. Correct. Yeah. So it was a it was a fairly short period of time, and and um, all I can say is that there was an absolute ton of lessons learned. Some the hard way, some the fast way, um, and uh, it was a sink or swim kind of a a market and moment for me, and so. Uh, I had to rely heavily on some of my own personal work ethic and some of my own desire and stubbornness <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to make it all work. Uh, there was many points in time when uh, I think that things could have gone sideways. And uh, I think back on it now and I don't know if I would have the energy to do it again. Um to sort of reinvent the wheel again if I rewound the clock, uh, knowing what I know now. So, but it was, so it, was, it, was, it, was it was it was it was a difficult job to to start the airline and to get it get it going and to do what it has done to get it to where it is now. It 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 has not been an easy road, and uh, it's been a huge challenge, but it's been a rewarding challenge as well. I was taught very young in life that. That which is uh, worthwhile is often difficult. I bet, yep. So how does a smaller company like yours compete with sort of the harbor airs on the coast? Um, how does the business model work for you to make it work well? Is, it, is your competitive advantage that you're more flexible and you can kind of customize your trips for people? That's an interesting question. Um, what's my competitive advantage? I've often thought about what my competitive advantage is, and I've often thought about what makes my company my company, and what drives the reliability or drives the um, the customer satisfaction rate and the repeat customers. Um, I think if I were to put it in a nutshell, what people buy when they purchase a seat or uh, charter with my company is they buy um, a service, a personalized service that I am offering. They're, they're basically paying me and they're entrusting me. For many years, um, many of my customers um, didn't even know the name of the airline. Often I would hear customers saying, are you flying with Peter Grimm? Uh, and everyone had my name sort of on their fridge. I, <laughs> I handed out business cards like crazy, and I don't think it mattered what the company's name was on there. Uh, for many years, it was that they were purchasing a service that was very personalized, and, and it soon became apparent that I was much like everyone's private pilot, I was there, or there was their, I was their own corporate pilot, their, <laughs> their go-to guy. That I was the household pilot, <laughs> <laughs> nice, which was really entertaining. Um, I, I'm sure that was a bit challenging too. It is absolutely, especially, especially with any kind of growth, and you know, if my name is the business and the business is my name. I have to be exceptionally careful and I have to be um, respectful of uh, what that all entails on, on all aspects, whether it be my personal life, my business life, uh, and I got to be careful not to be dragged through the mud for anything. Uh, so it's an extra reminder that what I'm doing and what I'm relying on for my career uh, becomes uh, a lifestyle and all encompassing. Yeah, imagine when you. you you're in a business like that and you're tied to the business so closely. It's kind of like my business in video production is I made a name for myself, but then when you're get to a point where you have to send teams out, that's not including you, it gets a bit nerve wracking and quality control is important. So it's uh, of course. And then, you know, um, people expect you to make good on mistakes, whatever they may be. Um, and, um, you know, good, bad or indifferent. It's uh, it's a challenge. It's, it's certainly a challenge for any kind of growth to put anybody out there who doesn't have that experience, who, doesn't have, who hasn't been around for the decade of the, the business's uh, you know, um, existence, and they don't have all the history with all the families. Uh, 
Uh, you know, like there's often times that I'll start flying somebody when they had, you know, their first child. And so then you have a young family uh, flying to a destination regularly and, you know, a few years go by, a decade goes by, all of a sudden these kids are um, getting to be, you know, almost almost high school age and, uh, and you know, or families where they had young kids that were four or five years old sitting in the back of the plane and I'll never forget this one young guy. <laughs> He was probably five years old at the time, and I just remember he had this little voice coming from the back seat saying, Captain Peter, <laughs> do you ever <laughs> see whales? <laughs> you know, and this guy is in high school now, and I'm flying him and not with his whole family. You know, he's just going back and forth uh, to and from the family cabin in the summertime, and, you know, he's got girlfriends on the beach and stuff like that now. And it, it's it's just really entertaining. It, it's uh, it's neat to see everyone grow up. And the, the stories sort of go everywhere from people like that to people who um, have been inspired by seeing me flying to and from their, their family cottage for years and years and years. And now they're of the age where they have to make career decisions and they want to be float plane pilots because they saw me flying back and forth and and sort of idolize that uh, that lifestyle or that look and so it, it's 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 very intriguing um, but I think just to sort of like backtrack a little bit how does the, a company like mine compete with the likes of Harbor Air and uh, I think the answer is that everyone likes a personalized service they like to be called by name they like to have a rapport and a relationship whether things are going well or things are not going well it's nice to have that personal relationship it's like nice to call up somebody and say hey Peter how's it going and uh, we want to get you know up to the cabin uh, on Thursday can you make it work and um, to have that personalized experience I think is a small company thing and a benefit of the small company. Um, I don't necessarily charge less and I've never been a race to the bottom of the pile mm -hmm. uh, as far as prices are concerned. Um, I've always tried to charge fair rates uh, so that it's fair for everyone, fair for myself. I can continue to run a business in a sustainable fashion can, and it's fair for the customer. But they get a get the service that they'd like or better for the price that they expect. Yeah. Um, so. And float plane service is so essential for some of those remote communities. You, you end up being their lifeline in a lot of ways. Um, I agree. There's, sometimes literally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's countless occasions where we have done different tasks and performed um, different flights for people who truly needed it, needed it and a location where without the float plane things could have gone much differently do you have any memorable stories of connecting with people in those communities or a mission that you're given you were able to pull off uh i honestly we don't have enough time in the day to i could talk your ear off about <laughs> some of the most interesting stories but i mean just as you mentioned it one thing comes to mind i I brought a group of ladies up to Savory Island once and they were so excited to have a girls weekend and these ladies have been friends you know they're in their I want to call it retirement years and um, they've known each other since they were young and so unfortunately as life goes it they um, they have been separated by distance um, over the course of their lives and they make a point of trying to reconvene uh, at Savory Island uh, where one of their friends has a, a place and uh, no sooner did I get them on the beach uh, one of the gals that was in the group had received a text message that uh, her son had been in a car accident and was gravely ill uh, all the way in New York or New Jersey I believe and so she was trying to coordinate while we were flying up to the island 
uh, a means to get back home to be with her son. And um, I, I don't know how I was able to juggle or schedule, but I know that I ended up asking some people to move to a later flight so that we could get this woman back to Vancouver in a hurry because I had full planes. And um, just because of that personal relationship, I was able to ask somebody that I knew time didn't really matter to them, you know, would you like an extra couple hours on the beach? And uh, they said, yes, absolutely. I said, yeah. okay, well, let's try and bump you to a later flight and let's get this lady back to Vancouver so she can connect to a flight to be home with her her son who's gravely ill. And uh, although that was not a life or death situation, there has been uh, other situations which were, but um, it's just an example of, you know, that we're able to make it happen and and I'm sure that that extra effort was um, a big difference to this lady's life to be able to be back home inside of that same day uh, to be with her son was probably huge and you're covering some massive distance too if you just think about that like you know yeah uh, the alternative, of course, would have been to water taxi, and it would have been an eight-hour trek back to Vancouver, um, basically by any other means. This is in the middle of the summer, an August-long weekend, you know, like the busiest time of the year for all airlines. Yeah. And to turn somebody around and return them back to the East Coast of the United States was just pretty cool to see it all happen. Nice. So a lot of commercial pilot students, especially here in BC, they have dreams of spending at least some time of their career flying float planes. Um, obviously, the past years put a wrench in some things, but what are the prospects for people trying to break into that world? Um, there seems to be minimum requirements of sort of 500 hours on floats, which seems pretty hard to accumulate unless you have a float plane or go up north or go out east. Um, we talked before about um, how coastal flying is so different from interior flying and lake flying. But how, how do people go about getting hours and getting experience in the float world? That's, um, that's also, uh, that's, that's another great question. Um, anybody who's interested in float flying as a career, I applaud the effort. Um, it's, uh, it's a different kind of a flying uh, path than most others uh, I think because of its unique nature and because it's uh, rather challenging it can be very very rewarding as well so um, I wouldn't want to discourage anybody from trying to be a float plane pilot uh, in the past and historically it's been a one of the I guess starting points for a lot of people for their for their step in the industry and um, and it's a fantastic starting point. If you can imagine, as a young fledging pilot, you've got a bunch of different options. And if you think about the first, I don't know, want to call it 1,000 or 2,000 hours of your flying career, if you can imagine the person that goes in, not, not to knock any other path or be negative about any other route of, of getting your way through the industry, but if you think about the experience that you gain by being the pilot in command of an aircraft, a uh, small aircraft in very challenging conditions that are always changing, your decision-making skills, everything, it benefits drastically by making this step into the float plane world um, versus let's say you go and spend 2,000 hours as a co-pilot making your step from maybe a Navajo to a 1900 to whatever for there on out. Um, you don't have that pilot in command time. You know, you don't have everyone relying on just you. You don't have um, exceptionally challenging conditions where your runway is literally not flat and smooth. <laughs> yeah. Um, where you have to make decisions about whether you land somewhere based on where the pod of whales is. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's so many 
factors that make the float flying so rewarding and so fantastic for, I guess, thinking outside the box and being a, a well-rounded pilot that I think that everyone can benefit from spending some time flying floats and not thinking that the runway is going to always be aligned with the wind. Flexing your decision-making muscles. To have no runways, <laughs> to have no finite landing zone to make a decision on where you're going to land based off of a hundred different factors uh, is really kind of cool. And it makes you, it makes the brain very active while you're flying. And it makes the flying part of flying almost, it, it has to be fluid and natural uh, and it sort of forces you to be more in tune with the machine um, because your your mind is busy with making other decisions. So the feel of the airplane is, is going to tell you where your power settings are uh, more so than the gauge. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the opportunity to gain all of this experience is, uh, is spectacular with float flying. And so it's very difficult when you start mentioning, you know, a minimum requirement of 500 hours or 1500 hours or whatever the minimum requirements may be at the time. I think the minimum requirements are often dictated by demand and supply of, uh, of qualified pilots. Uh, in the past few right. years, um, I would say that minimum requirements have been a lot more moving. And uh, I think a person can get the job done very, very well without necessarily meeting uh, specific criteria. Um, if you say that blanket statement, by the time somebody achieves 1,500 hours, total time that they're going to be capable of doing XYZ job. That's a, that's a generalization and you're probably safe to assume something like that. Um, but oftentimes there's many people who break the mold. I often consider myself somebody who's different, uh, than the rest. I find that I learn quickly. I pick up on skills faster. Um, there's lots of people that are out there also having the boat and sailing experience that I have. Um, I think that has contributed a huge amount to my, uh, success as a float plane pilot, uh, being able to look at the water, read the water, tell the difference between tide, wind, um, you know, river current, that sort of thing. Uh, makes a huge difference. Oftentimes when people stare at the water, they just see water. And there's so much more. And, um, and that's the part that will differentiate between a, an okay float plane pilot and somebody who's a great float plane pilot. Um, and I won't put myself in either category really. Um, although I think experience and, and skill level will probably prove itself, uh, in time with, you know, how, how people perform and, uh, and what kind of sort of problems they find themselves in. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you want to, yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about, um, the difference between sort of coastal flying and float flying you might find in Ontario or up North? Sure. I know, I know um, you, you said it was quite a bit different on the coast. I would say absolutely. If you can just think about um, natural weather phenomena as well as um, let's talk about, you know, the water that you'll be operating in. Um, when you talk about seawater and the ocean, uh, you talk about salt water versus uh, working on fresh water. Uh, salt water is A, more buoyant. Uh, B, it's uh, oftentimes less protected. So you can uh, in adverse conditions, end up with water with sea swells that are, well, far exceed that of what you'll ever see on a lake. Um, lakes pose their own hazards. Um, a, you're less buoyant, 
B. Uh, when you have wind, you end up with uh, disturbed air uh, on the lake as well, on either one side or the other, uh, due to there being an upwind and downwind side of the lake and, and whatever natural uh, shoreline and uh, geographic sort of phenomena exist on either sides of the lake or all the way around the lake, that will dictate a lot about what the wind does on the lake. So, uh, and then of course the shape of the lake and where you want to be landing, where you want to be, uh, dropping off or picking up your passengers and, and, or cargo for that matter. Um, on the coast here, we have, uh, unique weather phenomena, um, associated with a mountain air, mountainous region. Um, so, the whole combination between being a mountainous area as well as, uh, as, you know, the ocean, you've got some pretty challenging conditions uh, that can make things very, very different than that of uh, somebody operating on remote lakes and call it northern Saskatchewan or Manitoba or that sort of thing uh, in the flatlands. Uh, it, there's countless weather-related issues that, we can speak about, <laughs> but, um, yeah. I would say, uh, decision-making and your handling skills of the aircraft, both on and off the water are going to be, uh, hugely, hugely tested when you're here on the, on the West coast, um, on the ocean. And I imagine sort of pre-flight briefing is quite a bit different on the coast. Cause you, you're probably looking at marine weather as opposed to aviation weather because you could be a thousand feet and be in totally different weather than on the surface well yeah i mean let's let's speak about i was already talking about savory island let's speak about that sort of neck of the woods um if you head up towards desolation sound or any there in that region um you're over 100 miles out of vancouver and uh, or close to 100 miles in some places and um your nearest weather reporting stations are some of the coastal communities that are either on the island or on the on the mainland. And let's face it, as you start heading out of Vancouver, things get fairly sparse fairly quickly. And the weather reporting that exists uh, as you get further and further from the lower mainland starts to be less and less reliable and very spotty. Um, so, for example, if you know that it's blowing southeast up in Powell River and you've got 10 knots gusting 15 or something like that at the airport, you also have to think about how that airport is situated, right? It's basically on, if you've got a southeasterly wind, which is often associated with sort of low pressure and some of the poorer conditions that we've got on the coast here, um, You've got Powell River situated on the lee side of a landmass, and uh, and it's down sloping towards the ocean on that lee side. So you can't even really trust that weather. So half the time when the weather is poor, or all the time when the weather is poor, half the time uh, you can't trust the weather reporting out of basically the only weather reporting station in that region. <laughs> right. Yeah. I always take Powell River's winds and uh, I double them and I expect that's what it's going to be uh, actually uh, either aloft or on the water and that's usually pretty close. So if it's 10 knots gusting 15, I can expect 20 gusting 30, which is a huge difference. Absolutely, yeah. But, but that's what has proven to be more reliable. And so when you talk about marine weather reporting, absolutely that becomes uh, a big factor and thankfully in bc we've got pretty decent marine weather reporting that in combination with a lot of our initiatives in the float plane industry we've been trying to put in a lot more uh, weather cameras or uh, cameras at different strategic locations on the coast um, those webcams make a huge difference on us being able to see what is physically going on and being able to make uh, go and no go decisions uh, when we get to the extremes. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what, how would you suggest somebody who wants to become a float pilot on the coast? What, what should their path be? I'm sure there's not just one path, but, um, how do you, how do you gain that experience? How does somebody gain the experience? I, I would say if you talk to a hundred float plane pilots, you're going to have a hundred different stories about how they made it work for them. Um, I wouldn't say there's a flow chart of this is what to do in order to exceed or, or succeed. Sorry. Um, so it's uh, it's a challenge. Uh, getting an opportunity to fly in the industry is um, uh, difficult. There's not always um, a seat available for everyone. Uh, being that it's a smaller sector of the industry and there's a lot of long-term pilots in the in this sector um, there's not always a ton of room for newcomers uh, so I would say if everyone decides that float plane flying as a result of listening to this podcast is <laughs> gonna be the root of, of their desired travel I would say don't be upset if it doesn't work um, any float plane flying experience is good float plane flying experience and is good for your career. Um, but if you truly have a passion for and desire to be a float plane pilot, you'll find out pretty quickly whether it's something for you or for not, not for you. Um, if you're no good at it, please don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> if it becomes something that's, you know, regular, if you're regularly finding yourself surprised by anything when you're flying floats, uh, Maybe you should consider a different path. Um, there's not a lot of people who are willing to tell you that. Uh, but um, it is also a, a rather dangerous and hazardous um, means of flying as well. Uh, oftentimes, I have trained people how to fly floats. And people who I have trained, I usually take under my wing and teach them how to do this as a profession. Um, unfortunately I can't train everyone and I don't know a lot of people who are providing quality training, uh, at this point. So it's, um, it's a, it's a real challenge to answer that question in a means that, um, will give anyone any kind of a definitive answer. Um, you're going to have to get an initial rating. You're going to have to oftentimes in order to have a job get some sort of experience historically that has equated to about 50 hours of experience. So there's many courses that are available out there that people call like a, a bush flying course or a professional mentorship. And they do that for 50 hours. I would say be very, very cautious and careful about signing up for a course where only 10 or 20 of that is done with an instructor. If there's a lot of solo time inv involved and high requirements for weather minima, then it's probably not going to serve you all that well. When I do 50 hours with somebody, I fly with them for 50 hours. And I got to say, after 50 hours, they're usually pretty polished, but there's still tons to learn. That's like a minimum in my mind, a minimum position for that person to be in, in order to start working with real training wheels on. Right. Yeah. Cause it seems like the sort of flying where you just, you have to learn by experience. Like nobody can teach you everything you need to know. Like you have to go and find those. Correct. Find those yeah. Things. There are yeah. some things. Yeah. There are some things where you have to be there and experience it in order to see it, to do it. And by going and flying with somebody for 50 hours, I'm able to, over the course of that period of time, usually experience poor weather conditions enough that we're able to instill some good decision-making skills and show somebody what different weather conditions look like. Uh, winds, visibility, all the rest of it. So, uh, 
Um, if you're in a very, very controlled manner, um, if you think about just, you know, what legal, legal minimum requirements are for a float plane to operate commercially, they're pretty crappy weather conditions, right? Low visibility, low ceilings, and generally days when your average pilot, private pilot would look out the window at home and not even travel to the airport, let alone already be at the airport warming up the airplane. So I would say the requirement to go and do it for a job is a whole lot worse or the weather conditions that you're going to operate in are going to be um, pretty varied. So uh, how do you experience that without actually having ever experienced it? If you can imagine just being the new pilot on the job and you've left a flying school where you weren't allowed to leave if the winds were more than 10 knots straight down the pipe and uh, no less than 12 miles of visibility and a temperature dew point spread of four. And you know what I mean? Like if you've been given all of these really good safety margins and now you've got a job working for somebody, anybody, and the customer is expecting you to fly if it's legal. So you could be operating in three miles of visibility and sub thousand foot ceilings if you're over the water. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no flying school is going to send you out in that weather. No, never. And the thing is, is that the customer and, and so also if you look at um, weather as a whole, you're not necessarily going to end up with the same weather for a hundred mile stretch all the time. You know, you end up with these weather conditions, uh, sometimes in stable conditions where you have that same weather all the way along. Um, but oftentimes it's in the change of a, a weather system. So you've got maybe 10 or 20 or 30 miles worth of poor conditions. And then your customers are sitting on a beach where it's sunny. And so if you tell them, oh, well, it's it's 10 miles, 10 miles viz and like, thousand foot ceiling and it's kind of rainy in Vancouver and I don't know if I want to come and get you yet. Guess what? You're not going to get that work ever again. Those people would never call you again. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Because there's going to be another airplane that's going to head out because it's perfectly legal to do so and also perfectly safe to do so. Right. So, um, managing the customer expectations with your own skill level and, um, being able to operate and continue to operate when uh, conditions are still legal, but not necessarily nice. Uh, it takes time. It takes some time. And, and having some proper training to do that is, uh, is invaluable. It's hard to come by too. Yeah. Because most people in the training world are, I hate to say this, they're generalized, but oftentimes ill-experienced themselves. Yeah. So uh, let's say somebody wants to take their initial float rating. Sure. Um, you you mentioned you did, you've done a lot of sailing, so you're able to read the water, things like that. What, what makes a good float plane pilot and what should somebody focus on when they go into that rating? Oftentimes people who have spent a lot of time on the water end up um, doing very well as a float plane pilot. The, the, there's, no, there's no lie or there's no um, big conspiracy going on that a float plane flies much like another airplane once it's in the air. Um, it's A, the takeoffs, B, the landings, and C, the water work um, that really are, are the challenge. Um, and if you think about what will allow somebody to excel in that environment is uh, having some knowledge of the water, right? If you are somebody who's lived in a landlocked area and have never really looked at a lake or an ocean, <laughs> I would say that it's probably not going to be the best for you. These are skills that can be learned 100%. These are, these are not things that we're born knowing or knowing how to do. This is, these are learned skills and learned, uh, behaviors. So, uh, you can be taught, 
but you're going to have to make, make a concerted effort to understand what you're looking at, understand what you're doing and try to, I say, achieve a better understanding than just, uh, showing up for a, a lesson. Um, you're going to want to, um, start contemplating, you know, the, the whole aspect of what's going on. Think about the buoyancy of your floats. Think about, uh, the way that the water is going to behave on the floats, uh, the shape of the floats, you know, that there's some floats that have uh, a deeper V on them than others. How's that going to affect the performance of it? You know, if you think about some airplanes that don't have very good, you know, directional stability and inherent, um, sort of design flaws at slow speed or, or other airplanes that have fantastic um, abilities at slow speeds. Think about what airplane you're going to be flying and, and what its natural design is going to lend itself to. Um, all of these little factors are going to assist in your ability to perform well. You know, if you've got a swept back tail versus a straight tail, how's that going to affect your performance at high angles of attack, right? You know, what's your, what's your rudder angle going to actually look like when you're going and landing and at a slow speed, do you have a very effective rudder? Do you not, um, what's that, what can you expect, right? When you start slowing the airplane down and you're going to land, you're you going to be very, very active on the rudder or is little inputs going to make a, a big difference. So all of these little things make a huge factor, make a huge difference to how well you can perform because if you're expecting the airplane to fly awful and it does fly awful then at least you know you're prepared for it <laughs> if <laughs> yeah. you expect an airplane to fly great and it flies awful and it's a surprise to you well i don't know what to say <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean uh, so i guess like any any training just dive into it and absorb as much as you can. And yeah, but don't necessarily expect, you can't necessarily always expect other people to provide every little bit of information to you, right? Um, I would say my, my best success stories are people who came in with um, a desire to learn and not just the minimum. People who really wanted to truly understand what's going on and they've come well prepared they already know everything, like, you know, your emergency procedures, the memory items that would be on a checklist, that shouldn't even be discussed. Like that, that's an expectation that lays there, doesn't matter what airplane you're flying. If you show up to fly an airplane and you've literally never looked at the checklist or POH, you probably shouldn't be there. Be You know, you're just not ready for that step, right? So you got to do your homework and, and I think that's your, I think that's the biggest takeaway from this discussion is that if you're going to do something, do your homework, be ready for it, expect everything that is going to come, come at you and try to contemplate, right? It's, it's, it's a uh, float plane flying as far as I'm concerned is a, a process of uh, identifying and mitigating risk. Yeah. So speaking of uh, expecting the unexpected, I, I was told I should ask you about a story of you uh, flying and your fuel pump died, and you you might have got a bit a bit of a workout with the <laughs> wobble pump. Yeah, I uh, I had a, a fuel pump fail um, on the Beaver. Um, it's got an engine driven fuel pump, and uh, once the engine, you know, you when you go to start the engine, you'll prime it and you'll uh, get some fuel pressure in the fuel lines uh, so that once the engine spins over a little bit, it will start driving the fuel engine-driven fuel pump a little bit, and it'll sort of maintain that fuel pressure. Uh, I don't know too many people who have had the experience and the lovely experience of having one of those engine-driven fuel pumps fail. Uh, I was lucky enough to have one of those fail once, and... Um, I was a little bit surprised by it that, uh, that it failed. Uh, but at the same time I sat there and I tried to make the best decisions possible. I thought, okay, well, here I am about 60 miles out of Vancouver. 
and this has failed. I have options to terminate my flight sooner. But is that going to uh, serve me well? Uh, am I just going to go and strand myself somewhere? Or uh, what's, the, uh, what's the thought process? And so while I was sitting there um, pumping fuel into the engine, I uh, decided I would climb up a little bit, get a little more air between me and the ground so that if the engine decided to die or the wobble pump then failed, then maybe I would have a little bit more time to make a decision on a landing spot. But while I was able to continue to achieve fuel pressure and that was looking all good, I tried a few times to see if the engine-driven pump would take over and I stopped pumping and sure enough, the engine would start to sputter and die. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I didn't, didn't test that theory too many times, but uh, I, uh, I flew the Beaver all the way back to Vancouver and I think on short final when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to make the river... I can't keep pumping here. I need to put flaps on. I need, you know, I need this hand for something else. I was sort of juggling everything in the cockpit, managing the situation. I, um, I finally just let the engine die and land the plane dead stick and then started it up again on the, once it was on the water, cause I just couldn't do everything all at once. <laughs> and also my, yeah, hand was, my hand was sore. You need four hands at the best of times. <laughs> yeah. My, my, <laughs> My right hand was pretty sore. I changed my grip a bunch of different times on the handle, but you never really realize how much effort it's going to take to to do this until you're in that position. So I got to say it was uh, it was a, a little bit more exciting than I anticipated that day to be. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it uh, it was just another day at the office. It was got the job done. Yeah. Nice. And you operate a Piston Beaver, which yes. is an iconic sight. Um, for, for those who've never flown one, what makes it such a workhorse? Like, why, is they, why are they still being used as the workhorses on the coast? That's a, that's a great question. Um, that, the, the de Havilland Beaver is a phenomenal and fantastic airplane that has proved itself over and over and over again. Um, they're an airplane that one must... 100% respect its limitations. They've got some very, very nasty adverse um, sort of flight characteristics when they stop flying. I guess those aren't really flight characteristics. They're falling <laughs> characteristics. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, they are, they are a fantastic airplane. Uh, what makes them so great is they were built in a time when over-engineering and over-building were the norm. I would say the airplane as a whole is built really rugged and tough, like a big old pickup truck. And the great thing about them is that they don't feel like a pickup truck when you're flying them. They're very, very responsive. They've got fantastic control authority. And... They soak up um, poor conditions so nicely. Um, you know, you can, they're the right size that, that they behave really well in big sea swells. They, um, they don't span multiple, you know, waves like the, the, the they're big enough to be big, to be a bigger airplane, but they're small enough to be a small airplane. They don't have too much wingspan that you have troubles docking them. They're not too heavy and cumbersome on the water uh, that when you get to a dock, it's going to pull the ropes right out of your hands. Uh, I, I, I can't say enough great things about the beaver, and it's something that um, I have learned to respect. It was not something that I um, initially respected. I... I I initially looked at the beavers as a bit of an aging platform and maybe they weren't the greatest thing in the world. Um, when I started operating them for my own company, um, that really changed my opinion a lot. Um, they're a great platform to make money with as well. So as a business owner, that also is a really nice added benefit. Um, 
the the Beaver is a phenomenal airplane, and and if you just take that as a blanket statement, you'll probably be in a good position for any argument with anyone. <laughs> well, I, I definitely uh, when I was up in Alaska with Flight Chops, um, doing some filming with him, and we, I got some time on the the little Cub, and then we got some time on the Beaver, and it, it was really not a huge step from a little Cub to a Beaver. It felt the same in the air. And then you you put one notch of flaps in on the beaver and it just like squats and it's super stable. And, uh, yeah, yeah, really they're fun. they're a phenomenal airplane and and they basically do as you ask of them. Um, I can't like I say I can't say enough good things about the the beaver itself as an airplane. It's um, it's something that uh, takes a little while to to learn about and to appreciate. Um, you have to have yourself in a positive mindset of that you're not getting there in a hurry. They're certainly not a very <laughs> fast airplane, um, but you will get there safely and you will get there um, in, I would say, a reasonable level of comfort. They've got pretty good um, passenger ergonomics and uh, they're very, very reliable. Even in the face of wobble pumps being your only f- source of fuel delivery they uh <laughs> they do have well, at least those, you have the wobble they pump. do have those yeah. backup systems and uh there is enough redundancy building the airplane that uh even when things are at their worst if you blow a cylinder and that sort of thing you you've got quite a few more to get you to the ground safely without it being a really major issue um yeah, they they are and have proven themselves to be fantastic, reliable machines. So um, history doesn't lie, and uh, and when we're operating these airplanes so frequently, um, it's no surprise that the Beaver has done so well. And so, looking forward, um, this year's been a little tough. But where do you see yourself in Van City in sort of five to ten years? Is this what you you love to do, and you're going to keep doing this? I absolutely love what I do. I know that um, that my company, there's uh, a lot of demand, uh, customer-based demand for what we do. And I would love to expand the company. I would love to grow. Um, there's certainly lots of opportunity for that. Um, because I started this company quite young and I didn't come from, you know, immense wealth by any stretch of the imagination um there are limitations to what i can personally do so in the long run i would see that um that van city has uh you know it's it's a sustainable business model i've proven that we've got a fantastic customer base that we really really appreciate it's a very symbiotic relationship um we do a lot for them they do a lot for us and um so there's there's lots of opportunities for Van City to to carry on as as long as anyone sees fit. Um, I would love to be um, part of that ride as long as I possibly can, um, barring any of the unforeseen. Uh, but um, I I absolutely love the people. I love the job. I love doing what I do. It also offers me a lifestyle that I can enjoy with my. Uh, with my family, I've got young children at home, so uh, I'm able to be home every night for them. Sometimes it's a late night, but I'm at least able to give my kids a hug and a kiss before bed most nights, and uh, and that's important to me. So, um, where do I see myself in five years? Um, that's a really good question, but probably right here doing this. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, if somebody if somebody comes along the way that um, wants to be part of the program, um, I would certainly uh, entertain that idea to continue the growth of the company. Uh, but yeah, there's there's only a, so much that one guy can do. There's only so many airplanes that one guy can manage, and I can only fly one at a time. So there you go. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Well, on that on that note, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I uh, I think I could probably talk your ear off, and I'm sure you could have lots of questions. But uh, at a certain point, <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, you're just gonna come and have to hang out, and well, I'll come visit the hangar. 
and chat that way. I hope you enjoyed that deep dive into the world of seaplanes. Are you looking to get your seaplane rating or pursuing a career as a floatplane pilot? Drop me a line and let me know how it's going. At Flying British Columbia on Instagram and Facebook. Or you can email me at podcast at flyingbc.com. We ended up postponing plans for the adventure camp this summer up at Sunia Lake Lodge due to the ongoing COVID restrictions. But plans are in the works for next summer. Plus, I've got some great t-shirts and other goodies coming down the pipe, hopefully in time for Christmas. Head over to flyingbc.com and sign up for the mailing list to get first crack at the adventure camps and other fun stuff. And I'll have some behind-the-scenes photos and videos and updates on the podcast as they come up. Until then, thank you to all the returning listeners, and welcome to all the new ones. Now, you have control. Control.